0: Welcome to the very first episode of Southern Lawyer, where we bring you real stories from real lawyers. I'm Kimberly Peyton Jones, and I'm so excited to have my good friend Eric Hertz on. Eric is a personal injury attorney in Atlanta, Georgia. He's going to share his story with us and tell us why he became an attorney, how he built his practice, and why he decided to change the focus of his practice.
1: Eric?
2: Yes, how are you?
1: Good. Thank you for being on Southern Lawyer today. How are you today?
2: Good. I'm very excited to be on your magazine. I think it's going to be an exciting thing. Looking forward to all the publications coming out.
1: Good. Me too. Well, I want to thank you for your support. I was thinking about having you on and I thought about when I first met you when I was worked for Daily Report and I came out to your office and you're so kind and gracious. And so when I think about a Southern lawyer, you're kind of the quintessential person that comes to mind. So why don't you share why it is that you decided that you wanted to become an attorney?
2: Well, I first wanted to become an attorney when I was in grade school because I wanted to understand the rules of society. I guess in those days, they didn't really categorize people in different, like, hyperactivity or not hyperactive and maybe I was one of those hyperactive kids, so I always felt like I was getting called out in class and kind of wanted to know the rules, and that was what made me want to be a lawyer, just understand what you're supposed to do and not supposed to do.
1: Well, that's impressive. Most of the time I hear people, they want to be a lawyer because they want to be rich. So you have a little bit more noble calling.
2: So then as time went on and I was uh, going through school, I did fairly decent in school, And I really enjoyed the learning aspect of being a lawyer, a job where you're always learning something new, whether you're doing a product liability case and you're learning the mechanics of a seatbelt or a medical malpractice case and you're learning how the superior mesenteric artery goes through the abdomen or a nursing home case, you're learning the F-tags. It's always something new to learn and it keeps your mind sharp. Very rewarding in that respect.
1: Well, I remember my first summer, I think I was still in college, and I interned at a law firm the summer before I was taking my LSAT, and one of the attorneys I worked for said that being a lawyer was like being a lifelong student, which actually kind of freaked me out, but (laughs) you enjoy that aspect of it.
2: Yeah, I do enjoy that aspect of it. I also enjoy helping people. I come from humble beginnings. My father worked in a factory. My mother was a registered nurse, and they always took us to different places to do work for charity. We would uh, either go to, I remember uh, one time my parents, we had five kids, took us to nursing homes, which brings me to nursing homes, to read books to the elderly people. We'd always be involved in going to the humane society and playing with the dogs that are locked up in cages all day. Of course, my parents adopted a lot of those dogs. So that was the way I was raised, to always be helping someone or make that your life goal is to help the other people make a difference in this world before you leave the world and go to heaven.
1: Well, you know, I'm reading between the lines here, and so you said you guys had five children, you were high school, yeah. and your parents are stuck a lot
2: of
1: <laughs> <laughs> Wow. So yeah. given that your, your parents, you know, your mom's a registered, you know, this was a profession, and your dad worked in a factory, did you find that it was a clear path for you to become an attorney, or did you have any challenges in pursuing that? as a career
2: option? Um, There's always challenging challenges. I had to work my way through undergrad, high school undergrad and law school. I didn't have financial support from my parents and any significance, although they tried their hardest. And what scholarships, academic scholarships didn't cover, I'd have to work for. And I always had to do a little better than the next guy because I had no fallback position. I couldn't go work for my mom or my dad's business. No other people in my family have ever been lawyers. So it put a lot of pressure on me, and that was very challenging.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was sound similar to my experience. And, it, you know, I think people overlook it, but it is when you don't have a relative or someone who's a lawyer or you can't go work for your uncle's firm. It puts a different kind of pressure on you.
2: Mm-hmm. So how was
1: your job search came out
2: without having Well, when I graduated law school in 1991, we were just either going into a lawyer hiring recession or generalized recession for the economy. It was hard to get jobs. I was one of the fortunate people that got a job. In fact, I was supposed to start working for Don Keenan, who's a very well-regarded and famous lawyer in Atlanta. And about a month before I was supposed to start working for him because I got my job offer from him, I decided to open my own law firm, something that was fairly unheard of back in those days. And that was kind of the first thing I did that was pioneering. And I opened the law firm, and as I told you in another conversation, I would talk to everyone. I remember I was in a building with 60 other lawyers, and we shared the same reception and she would answer all the calls for all 60 lawyers, all sole practitioners, like one of these office sharing arrangements. And I would come up to her on Valentine's Day, bring her some flowers, she was a nice elderly lady, on her birthday, get her a cupcake, and just a general thank you every time I walked by. This was in my first six months out of law school. And this case came through the door. Larry Clark was the name of the client and his son was killed in the first Mideast War. And I remember the gentleman coming, Larry Clark, and asking to talk to lawyers, and about five lawyers in that building turned his case down, saying it's a wartime death and there's nothing other than the death benefits that you can get. And because of my relationship with the receptionist, she said, well, why don't you go talk to Eric Kurtz? He's just been a lawyer for six months and he doesn't have much to do. <laughs> Not the best introduction, but I was happy to talk to him. And through talking with him, I realized that his son was on a ferry boat, not owned by the United States government, but owned by an Israeli company and contracted by an Israeli company. And there was actually a tort case there, an international lawful death tort case. I remember getting on the plane to go talk to the JAG officer in Jacksonville. They had People's Express, I believe it was called back then. We just kind of show up like a bus terminal and buy a ticket, and it was like twenty nine dollars round trip to Jacksonville back, which was a lot of money for me back then. And I went down and I had lunch with this JAG officer, and he was so impressed with me that he said, "Do you mind if I tell the other family members about you and your pursuit of this case when they when they call in for the report? What happened?" I said, "I don't mind at all." I was real lucky because I ended up getting 19 sellers in a wrongful death action with unlimited deep pockets. And, of course, it's an international case, and I'm out of law school six months. And I do what you're supposed to do, which is I associate the best and greatest lawyer that I knew at the time, which is Jay Elmore, Bondurant, Mixon, and Elmore. He helped me on the case. And because there were so many plaintiffs, and so much go around, he gave me a very fair fee split on the case, 50% each. And we worked that case hard for many years and it confidentially resolved. And it gave me a little boost that most lawyers don't get. So a lot of my success comes from a little bit of luck and getting that boost, that financial boost.
1: You know, Eric, though, when you say it comes from luck, I hear that, but I also think, you know, there's a couple of lessons to be learned. One, being friendly to the receptionist, talking to everybody, and then also, you know, you said when you went down and talked to the JAG officer, he was impressed with you, so, you know, I think there was something at play more so than luck. What do you think it was that made him be so impressed with you?
2: Well, first of all, thank you. I try to treat everyone as it says in the Bible as I would like to be treated. It's real hard to do on a day-to-day basis, and I try. I'm not perfect, but I try to do more good than bad, and usually it works out that way. And I think if you just talk to people, and this is mainly for the younger lawyers that will be listening to this, and treat everyone equal, the person that cleans the bathroom as well as a judge, because you never know when that person will be the person making a major decision in your life. That's the neat thing about the jury system. It's a cross-section of our community. It could be someone as powerful as a CEO or as powerful as the garbage man. And if you notice, I said powerful, both of them. because they both are powerful. They both have an equal say-so. And that's the way I try cases too. I've been fortunate in going to different counties throughout the southeast, not just the metropolitan counties but also the southern counties and the urban and suburban and – Country counties and, and have gotten very good results. Six record high verdicts for the different counties, one for the nation. And I attribute that to treating everyone equal.
1: All right. Well, so you've got this big case with, you know, some of the top attorneys that we know, it Nixon, Elmore. So then what happens after that? Now you're on the map, You're Eric Hurt, really at that point, probably like <laughs> a whiz kid, boy genius, young attorney.
2: Well then another series of fortunate events happened. I wanted to give back a little to the community and my time and experience that I had, the great experience with J. Elmore. And I decided to volunteer to speak in some seminars at ICLE. Started out with a soft tissue injury seminar in I think nineteen ninety five or ninety six and we had a tremendous turnout. I had two great partners, Mark Link and Houston Smith, and the turnout was so large in that seminar that soft tissue injury seminar that they asked our firm to write a book when i say they at harrison company george maddox was vice president He was a great guy may he rest in peace and he asked us to write a soft tissue injury book and then we got more seminars to give to cheer and help and return and we ended up doing a seminar for punitive damages and I really took a liking to trying punitive damages and still do. It made me feel good to actually do something other than trying to collect money from my clients, to punish or deter a wrongdoer, to hold somebody accountable. And of course, that's where George Maddox, again, saw how well our other book was doing and asked me to write the Punitive Damage book, which I wrote. And finally, the Georgia Law of Damages book. So from that, I ended up, taking a more back to the very beginning where we were talking, a more academic approach to law and where I was constantly learning, reading every case that came out, writing, updating these books, giving seminars, and trying cases. So it kind of was a perfect storm for a plaintiff attorney that graduated law school and didn't work for somebody else first. And I'm very blessed and I thank God for that and loved ones in my life. The first Half of my career, I was doing what I had to do, and now I'm doing what I want to do with the people I want to be with to help the people I want to help, and I'm very fortunate to be able to do that.
1: I have a couple questions. I want to go back for a second because you went from having this job with this well-known Atlanta attorney to starting your own firm. What made you decide to do that, particularly coming straight out of law school? That's very brave.
2: Well, thank you. It even becomes more brave when I tell you that I had no money in the bank and a $10,000 credit card bill and a lot of student loans and a $50 car. But, and that's the truth. But the problem and the, 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 not problem, the reason I wanted to do this is because I wanted to pick and choose the clients that I wanted to represent. I didn't want to be locked into a situation with any law firm, whoever they may be, where They might say, if it's using a criminal lawyer, for example, they might say, hey, go represent this guy that's drunk and driving, Mm -hmm. something that I'm very openly against. And as I talk in seminars, I've had a cousin that was killed by a drunk driver. That's part of the motivation that made me want to write the Punitive Damage book and try so many Punitive Damage cases against drunk drivers. And I was one of the pioneers in that industry, too, in getting some of the larger verdicts in the beginning and making case law. And that's what made me want to start my own law firm so I could do what I wanted to do to help the people I wanted to help and make the difference that I wanted to make.
1: You know, it's interesting because we always talk about the roadblocks to starting your own firm, which are most often money, but there may be some benefit to not having any and never knowing what it feels like to get a big big paycheck before you go out and start your own practice.
2: Right. But luckily, back in the early 90s, the Superior Court judges in Fulton County were tremendous people and very generous and they would give court appointed work. And while I was working on the Larry Clark case and some of the six months before that, I'd go down to Fulton County and be put on a court appointed list and get cases, felony cases in which you would get paid $200 to handle the whole case. And, when you're just trying to try cases and help people, the money doesn't really matter. If you do four cases a month and you get $800 a month, you can survive if that's the only thing you want to do. One suit, you get it dry cleaned on the weekend, and you work hard during the week. And that's the way it has to happen sometimes. I see nowadays with the younger generation, my kids included, you know, they don't understand how to struggle to get what you want. Um, And not all my kids, I don't want to say that, but one of them maybe. And you have to struggle. You have to do what you want to do, and there's never a right time to do what you want to do. You just have to do it and take the risk.
1: So one practical question. Coming out of law school with no serious history of practicing and being solo – Where were you able to – I know you partnered with a a firm on a big case, but where were you able to go to to get assistance for questions that you may not know or just, you know, basic procedural things that you may not learn in in, in law school? As we always say, you know, law school teaches you how to think but doesn't necessarily teach you how to practice. So who did you rely on for those practical things that you don't necessarily learn in law school?
2: I actually, for the practical things, and I'll distinguish that between the practical things and the things they don't teach in law school. I actually accredit a lot of my teachers in law school that taught me. Of course, we had Westlaw in the building that I was in, and I could look up the different case law and the procedures. But what they don't teach in law school is how to convince a jury. And that's something that I think and believe strongly is individualized to each individual attorney There's no methodology. I could tell you how I do it, but there's no methodology. I know there's a lot of people or companies out there, non-lawyer companies as well that say, you know, this is the psychology of a jury or do a focus group or whatever they may suggest is the theme of the day. But each lawyer has to try the case their way from their heart with complete and utter honesty as much as they can to the jury, and the jury will see the truth. And remember, it's not a lawyer's job to win or lose the case. It's a lawyer's job to show the jury the truth and to advocate for his client. Fortunately for a lot of good lawyers, including myself, we've been able to win a lot of cases, more than we've lost, but that's not the end-all, be-all. You might have a person in a murder case, and you might be trying to keep them from getting the death penalty and get life in sentence, you know, that might be a loss either way to your client, but you're doing good for society and you're letting the jury decide based on the truth. There's so many different gray areas of what's considered a win or loss that if you just focus on only what's considered a win or loss, you'll lose sight of what you're really there for, which is to help your client by showing the jury the truth.
1: One other thing I wanted to ask you about that came out, I think, in your story is Marketing, and I know a lot of times that's another thing you don't necessarily learn in law school about marketing or the importance of marketing. But it sounds like you maybe accidentally started doing some marketing with doing the seminars and, and, and doing doing the books and that sort of thing. But so, what is your perspective on, on marketing? For practice? I think
2: the most important thing, and, and since I've been a lawyer for 27 years, I've seen the different marketing challenges and changes that have gone on in the legal field. Of course, we all remember, I believe in 1970s when they changed the bar rules to allow lawyers to advertise on TV, and the pioneers then were Siler and Jonab. John Jonab, who I give homage to, a great lawyer, but took steps to advertise on TV when no one else would do it and he was criticized for, now is a regular thing that gives people information And then we went to the Internet, which is another way of advertising. I've always believed that your reputation should speak for yourself. And if you don't have the money to advertise your reputation, because I don't think there's anything wrong with advertising, then, or you don't have the desire to advertise it in a mass media way, then you can do it through giving seminars and writing books and letting other lawyers know about your accomplishments. But the most important thing is to get the accomplishments first, and then you must let your clients, your opposing counsel, the judges know that you've had these accomplishments. You must say, hey, I've tried 114 jury trials. I am double board certified, and I have wrote these books. And from that, you get cases. I've been referred cases from the defense counsels that I've gone against. I've represented defense counsels I've gone against. I've been referred cases from the editors of my book, or all three books. I've been referred cases from Supreme Court judges, or at least my name was mentioned, as well as all kinds of other judges, as well as my own clients and other lawyers. And that's a great honor to know that somebody that's seen you do your work will refer you a case.
1: Yeah, that's probably one of the highest compliments you can get. I think so. So now... You spent a uh, several years doing mostly tort kind of practice.
2: Now we're doing the nursing home work. This phase of my career, until the end, I anticipate I'll be doing nursing home cases. I believe it's time to speak for those that can't speak for themselves, and I believe it's time to change the way society sees the elderly and treats them in general, specifically through corporate and corporate financial motives. The elderly, in my opinion, are not, this is an extreme example, but they're not a herd to be herded and taken care of in a profitable way. They're our moms, our dads, our grandmothers and grandfathers. They're important people. They are more important than anybody else or equally as important. And this is their time to enjoy the rest of their life. And I want to make sure that if they're in... A skilled nursing facility that they're being taken care of. And if they're not, not only fix it for them, but try to fix it for the next people that are coming in. And that's kind of the cause I've taken on. And I hope to be their champion and win their cases. And that's, that's where my path has led me.
1: So what is it about the nursing home arena that drew you to it?
2: Well, again, mainly I want to, and it goes back to when we were doing charity work with my parents, and they would take me to the nursing home to read to the elder people. I've always felt that there's wisdom that can be gotten from elderly people. My grandmother was in a nursing home. I did not like the circumstances in there. But more than just a personal thing, I just feel that these human beings, these wonderful, knowledgeable, wise human beings should be, like, put on a a pedestal and not shoved in a back room. So they're the people that raised us and created the society we have now. And I just wanted to champion their cause to not forget about them. To, let's take care of them and, and do a good job. And if nothing else, make sure their rights are not violated.
1: Yeah, I know. I agree. With you. I know for me, since I've been more involved in church, there tends to be a lot of elderly people. And really, my whole perspective of Age has shifted and maybe it's also me getting older too, but I remember I used to think of someone who's 80 <laughs> as being kind of old, but now I have plenty of people that I would consider friends who are in their, their 80s, you know, exactly. and so you know, to think about them being put someplace and neglected is, is definitely, um, problematic. But also, was there any strategic portion well, there's of it? always a, you know, I think
2: for those that want to get in nursing home, I can tell you there is a lot of rewards that can be reaped in helping these people. You can try a lot of cases because most of them would go to trial, I would imagine. You could you could lose a lot of money because they're very expensive, or you could win a lot of money because some of the neurosciences have deep pockets. So there is the traditional lawyer's motivations in there. As I was telling you earlier, this is more of a second phase of my life where I now do something because I want to do it and I don't have to do it. But for those that want to help somebody and are also looking to boost their career, nursing home is a good way to start. And I would advise them, just like I did with my USS Saratoga case, you know, to talk to some lawyers, and I'll welcome anyone to call me anytime, and tell them how to do nursing home cases. We share all the information we can and like to teach And broaden the horizons of all lawyers and every aspect of knowledge that I have.
1: Got it. No. So, what is the just out of curiosity? How much does it cost to try a nursing home case? Because I'm always surprised when I learn how much expensive it is to try a case.
2: Well, the average nursing home case that we're spending is over hundred fifty thousand dollars a case. And you know, with any type of nursing home, which is considered a type of professional negligence, some some of them have components of medical malpractice from a doctor or a hospital they're expensive so if you know we're handling a large amount and you have ten nursing home cases, you're going to be in for one point five million and if you have over a hundred such as us, you could be in up to fifteen million dollars in expenses. We actually have over two hundred, but it's some you have to you know work on and wait till you are ready to. Do it in large numbers, but if you just want to take one on and try it, that's something that I think most people should be able to do if they want to. And can also, but it. what if
1: you know, I'm, I'm just out of law school, I want to do these nursing home cases. I'm listening to Eric Hertz. Would you,
2: uh, would you recommend
1: partnering with a firm on a nursing home case? Yeah, I
2: would recommend when them partner with us. Okay. <laughs> I would recommend <laughs> them partnering with us. Call me or email me, and I would be glad. To work with them, teach them, split the fee in a fashion that's fair, and we can all just do what's right and have a fulfilling time doing it.
1: So you mean to tell me you can be a lawyer, make money, and do good all at the same time?
2: Yes, you can.
1: Well, great, Eric. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you for all your support, and we look forward to seeing what happens in this next phase of your career. It sounds like it's already off to a great start with overtime cases. So, congratulations. Well, I that.
2: appreciate being on your show and on your website, and thank you so much for inviting me to talk.
0: Thank you all so much for listening to the first episode of Southern Lawyer. And a very special thank you to Eric Hurts for talking to me today and for being my first guest. Please subscribe to Southern Lawyer Newsletter at southernlawyer.org. That's southernlawyer.org. Look for news, feature stories, and upcoming events. Thanks again for listening. I am Kimberly Peyton jones and this is Southern Lawyer, where we bring you real stories from real lawyers.